Hi, I'm Jack DeKaiser, and you are listening to Talking Blues. Okay, so Jack, you're recording an album. Tell me a little bit about this album. Uh, this, it's my 12th album, and I've been working on it for my entire life. And the uh, actually, while well, I've been listening or uh, working on it writing wise mostly for the last five years and uh, i'd say it's uh it's a real songwriter's album it's a real blue guitar album it's blues rock i think it's and it also really seems when i hear the songs they just remind me a bit of of classic songs that i've loved my whole life there's there's uh, clapton influences there's marvin gay there's bob marley there's santana there's muddy waters there's uh, albert king and so i i I wanted to make an album that was a bit, half of it was sort of just live raw blues and the other half was was a little bit more studio sounding, a little more produced, a little more uh, overdubs, a little bit more radio type, type songs. So how do you come up with an idea like that? Like how does, how does this concept for the album um, become the idea? Like, do you, does it come from one song? Does it come from the idea first? I think it comes from whatever I've been listening to. So if I, I tend to listen to the same, same stuff. I mean, I, well, not always, but you know, I love Marvin Gaye. I love Clapton. I tend to go back to their records often. I, I love Muddy Waters. I love chess records. I love um, Blue Note Jazz. So I think all those influences show up in, in the songwriting and then generally it's just a song title. If I come up with an evocative enough song title, it'll then the song will sort of write itself, and the and the the title of the song will sort of dictate more or less what kind of music it is. You know, I mean, I've got a song uh, uh, on there called "If My Baby Left Me," when it was just sort of a humorous kind of muddy waters type tongue and cheek blues. So I mean, it it just depends on sort of the. The, the mood of the lyrics dictates what, what the music will be like. And I, I didn't really have a concept before I started, and I still don't even have a title for this album. So, I mean, it, it's not that easy to really come up with a, con, with a concept to me. But at one point or another, you say, I have enough songs. This is pretty well the album. Oh, for sure, yeah. I, 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 my my um, quality is quantity. I, I mean, I think I probably started with, with about... 30, 40 tunes, and then I just kept listening to those and trying to demo them and working them down. Then I got that down to about 18. Then I cut three or four out of those. And then we recorded 15, and we'll pick the best 12 from those. So, yeah, it was a, it was a real um, editing job. I think I've spent more time on this record so far uh, as far as arranging and really editing, making sure I had the very best material. And is it easy to know... Like, do you imagine what the album is while you're recording it, or does it evolve? Uh, it no, it sort of evolves. I think you you you're not. I'm not really quite sure, especially with the original material. I mean, I did an album two years ago called um, Checkmate that was a was a uh, all mostly chess records blues covers. And I mean, when you have that, it's easy to say, hey, this is going to be a. a a tribute to chess records but when i'm doing jack de kaiser songs it's like it's it's what it's a tribute to what my life <laughs> and then okay so you let's see record 18 and pick 15 the, the three songs that you've done but you've not chosen 
Does that ever find themselves on future albums? Oh, for sure. Sometimes there'll be song like I have out of the forty or f- tunes that I started with. I, like there's there's twenty of them were probably half finished, right? Or they were just a, a good title or some idea that may, I may pick up again. Uh, there's one song on this album that I actually wrote in the uh, '80s, and uh, I've been kind of messing around with it, and it's never made it to a record until now. So I mean. That's pretty rare, but I mean that—that's an album a song that's forty years old. <laughs> wow! So are there like a lot of songs in the back burner? Not that many, no. I mean, I'd say, um, yeah, I, I probably have like a half a dozen songs that that date back from you know forty years ago that I've rolling around in my head once in a while. I go, oh, I wonder if I could resurrect that. But you know, and then there's songs from like. 10 years ago and songs from five years ago. So, I mean, but I mostly try to mind that what, what I've done in the last few years. Right. So. Right. So if we go back a bit to how music came into your life, tell me about that. I grew up in England and uh, I think pretty well, ever since I can remember, I was enamored of music. The, the, um, in England, there was a singer named Cliff Richard, Mm-hmm. Who was who had a, a guitar band called the Shadows, and they were real rock and roll. They were English as Elvis, sort of Elvis and the Ventures, all wrapped up into one. And um, I remember my mom taking me to a, a his movie called The Young Ones, and uh, that I'm going to say that was probably 1961. And we we watched the whole movie, and I was just like wide eyed. I couldn't believe how great it was. And I asked her if we could watch <laughs> it again, and we watched it twice. And then I said, Mom, can we watch it again? And God bless her. She let me watch it a third time for like wow. for, for about 15, 20 minutes. And then she went, you know, I thought, what, uh, is that enough? And I went, yeah, I realized, yeah, <laughs> we probably had enough. But that changed your life. It did. I mean, ever since I have I can remember, I love music. I remember hearing um, Heartbreak Hotel on on um, the radio when I was a kid, Rock Around the Clock. I mean, these these were hits when I was a, just an infant. So, uh I think uh, that music has always been rattling around in my brain. And then how did the guitar come into your life? We were, uh, my parents were planning on moving to Holland for a year and, or, or where they were not a year, they were planning to move to Holland. And uh, the guy that bought our house in England, he had a guitar with him for some reason and I, my eyes just lit up and I guess he didn't really want it. So he gave it to me. And uh, I mean, who knows uh, when you're when I was like seven or eight so guitars are usually pretty big and uh who know the strings might have been a mile off the neck anyway I couldn't do much on the thing but I remember it sat at the foot of my bed for a couple years and then uh we moved to Holland and then that didn't work out we ended up moving to Hamilton Ontario in in 64 and that's that's about when I got my first guitar and uh like all good blues men I got mine from Sears it's the Sears <laughs> Roebuck guitar, <laughs> and uh, it, it was called a uh, um, oh a Saturn. It was a Saturn, and um, I plugged it through a symphonic amp, and it looked sort of like a Stratocaster, and it had a million pickups on it. And um, well, I I didn't even realize it ne- you needed an amp. That's how how unpopular right. like that was I, I thought you just plug the thing into the wall right and then you, you got we got it home and went like well what's wrong with it oh you need an amp so then my parents got me an amplifier for it do you remember what 
one of the, some of the earlier tunes that you learned? Uh, yeah, I learned Wild Thing. I remember I learned um, I Can See for Miles by The Who. I learned uh, House of the Rising Sun. I learned uh, Satisfaction by the Rolling Stones. I learned The Last Time. I learned how to play uh, high heel sneakers. I learned how to play some Jimmy Reed songs, and then, uh, and then a couple years later, uh, a friend of mine, we had, we had a little band that we 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 just jam in the basement, and I, this would be about 1965 or six. His uh, brother w- was in the armed forces and came back from Germany with this album that was like this green album with this fisheye lens of these three cats and all purple and distorted looking. And it was Jimi Hendrix's first album, Are You Experienced? And I, I, that just was a real like aha moment for me. I mean, I, I ended up learning every song on that album that I could. Did, did playing the guitar come easy to you? Um. I wouldn't say easy, but it was, uh, I, they certainly never had to tell me to stop practice They or they never had to tell me to start <laughs> practicing. They used to have to tell me to stop playing. <laughs> so was there an aha moment when, when you were first learning how to play the guitar and you learned something that you had been working on for a very long time or like where you felt like you made a breakthrough? Um, pro- well, probably I think the, one of the first, things i learned was um heat wave which had some kind of cool chords in it i thought i was pretty fancy for playing those chords and then <laughs> and then i learned how to arpeggiate by playing house of the rising sun that so i learned how to do arpeggios that was really cool and then i think when i learned the intro to uh, hey joe that was another like wow i'm and it sounded like it sounded right because <laughs> like, yeah. oftentimes you'd learn something it'd be you know close but no cigar but you know you're <laughs> you're at nine and there's no youtube and nobody else plays guitar like now everybody plays guitar but when i when i started barely anybody played it <laughs> right i think the, there were there were more, point- I, sorry there, i think there were more hawaiian guitar players than there were electric ones <laughs> at what point did you think you were good Oh, probably immediately knowing me. <laughs> <laughs> At what point did you think that you wanted to do this as a living? I the well, when, once the Beatles came out and they hit big and everything, I thought, "Wow, that looks like a I like that job. That's that's a job <laughs> I wouldn't mind doing." But um, through, I'd say I was probably about thirteen, fourteen. And uh, right around the corner from us, there lived a, a family called the Newells, and their son had a band called the Chessmen, and they were re- rehearsing, uh, playing chess blues, and it was King Biscuit Boy, and he just lived around the corner from me. And so I used to sit there at the, you know, once in a while I'd go to and, and stand by the window and watch them rehearse in the basement, and I thought, wow, that that's pretty cool, I like that. And then, uh, you know, we heard, we heard that he was playing around and doing stuff, and... Uh, Back in those days, too, you'd get um, bands playing at high schools and, and you'd get bands playing at um, at shopping malls and stuff like they, they, they would just put on concerts. So I remember seeing um, McKenna Mendelssohn main line at my high school. I saw Downchild 
blues band out of high school. I saw uh, a, an organ duo, T Garden and Van Winkle. They were from Detroit. I so it was. I think around all around those times, I thought, yeah, this is uh, this is what I'd like to do. And so, how easy was it when you started playing and started to play in bars to establish a name? Would would, would this be with uh, with Bobcats first, or was there many other bands before then? There were a few before that. Well, first, what we did was we played in church basements, and we played in coffee houses, and we played at YMCA's, and we played our little band with our Hendrix songs and our uh, Rolling Stones and, and stuff like that and our Bo Diddley groove and, you know, and we had black lights and we'd paint our faces Dago and all that stuff. And, <laughs> uh, and then we were probably like 15 or 16. And then uh, around the age of 17, 18, I started getting to play with some professional people, um, a guy named Michael O'Brien, some friends of mine on that mountain in Hamilton said, well, this guy's got a good band downtown. You got to go play for him. So I played for them and they really liked my playing. And so they started hiring me to play in a bar and I was about 18 and, um, the bar didn't seem to mind too much that I was under underage. So I, I played there for a, for a, a summer. And it turned out that a couple of those guys were friends with uh, King biscuit boy and had been in his band, probably even in that band that I'd been watching through the window uh, around the corner from my house. So Biscuit used to come out and see us play sometimes. And I think right around then, or about 74, he asked me to join his band. So that was right. I was just going into grade 13. And uh, I went for a couple of days, and then I just thought, I've got gigs. I'm not, I don't want to do this anymore. So then I just became a full-time musician. Wow, what was it? What did you learn from King Biscuit Boy? It was a real education working with Biscuit because he he's like he's like a he was a genius really. I mean, he was a tortured soul, but he was just a, a phenomenal musician, and he had a great brain for uh, for music. And he had a huge record collection, and he'd be, he'd put them all on cassettes, and depending on you know how. Um, what's the word, uh, prolific they were or how legendary they were. Like Little Walter would get two 90-minute cassettes. You know, B.B. King would get get a one 90-minute. Slim Harpo would get one side of a, of a cassette. So I, ju I just heard, like, so much great music on on the way to all the gigs that we'd played. I, I, I learned all about Chicago blues. I learned about all the King, the King guitar players. I learned all about um, New Orleans rock and roll and rhythm and blues. Learned about country blues. So it was a real education. I mean, that's where I really got uh, deeply in, into uh, blues guitar. I guess. Uh, and a great teacher to have. So then the Bobcats... No, after, after, after? after Biscuit Boy, I was about... 18, 19, and then uh, Biscuit, you know, as everybody knows, you know, he had a, he had the battle with the bottle, and uh, and he really was, despite his phenomenal talent, he was just an extremely nervous performer. He did he did not like leading his own band. He did not like being center stage. So uh, Ronnie Hawkins had come to see us, and Ronnie asked uh, Biscuit and I to join his band. So Biscuit was uh, ready to just be, become a sideman again for a while, which which is really a, 
it was a bit of a tragedy. I mean, the guy had had actually like hits on the radio and been written up in Rolling Stone and Playboy and had done a U.S. tour and. But he was a sideman with Ronnie Hawkins, so I went along with Biscuit Boy, and I played with Ronnie for about four years from, uh, I'm going to say, 75, 74 to 78. And then after that, uh, I joined uh, Robert Gordon, had a rockabilly band in New York City, and he was in between guitar players, and so I went to New York City and auditioned for his band. And he'd had... um, Link Ray was on his first couple albums, and, and then Chris Spedding, and then uh, right. th- then I joined his band, but it was pretty short-lived because the record company, I guess they were having a hard time um, marketing him. He was too rock and roll for country. He was too country for rock and roll, so they brought in Danny Gatton and, and made what they thought would be a country crossover album. What was it like playing with Ronnie Hawkins? It was uh, it was quite an education too. We played so many gigs with Ronnie. I mean, that was back in the days when you'd play three nights a week, five nights a week, sometimes six nights a week with a matinee, and we just toured all the you know most horrible places that they that that were out there. And uh, you know, where are we playing next week? Another horrible place. Okay, <laughs> and we'd be there for another week. And but with, Sorry, can you can you define what horrible places is? Can you just draw uh, you me know, a picture what that? If there wasn't a fight per night, there, there was a problem probably. If there wasn't, <laughs> uh, the rooms would be upstairs in some dreadful hotel called the Kings or the Queens or the York or the Duke. They all all these regal names for the most dumpiest <laughs> places, right? And you'd be in your room and it'd be like 900 degrees and you'd, you'd have the windows open because there was no air conditioning and flies would be in there. And then you'd get woken up at noon every day by the strippers music of uh, Don't Be Cruel or something. <laughs> I remember. <laughs> and, uh, but with Ronnie, we played, you know, he played rock and roll. He played country. He played, um, he played some Gordon Lightfoot songs. He played some blues. And then I got to sing a few songs and Biscuits sang a few. So it was a, it was a bit of a variety show. Um, when you're going through this, and I guess you were working, so that's the main thing. But w- when you were playing at some of these really rough places, did you ever question what you were doing? Uh, it crossed my mind a couple times. Yeah, like, <laughs> I don't know if this is such a great idea. I was still young. I mean, I was only 20 years old. So I, there were a few times when I thought, I don't know if, I let, if I'm really digging this that much. Um, and then uh, I met a guy named Daddy Cool, Dave Booth, who was a, a DJ on CFNY, and he was a huge uh, supporter of King Biscuit Boy. And he had like an even larger record collection, a British guy. And uh, he was the guy that, that turned me on to the Robert Gordon um, um, audition. And he was also managing a band in Toronto that was starting to do pretty good called the Bobcats. So um, that's the, after I got back from New York City, I joined the Bobcats. So that, and then all of a sudden we started playing nice places and I moved to Toronto from Hamilton and I remember saying to the guys in the band, like we, I'd been with them for a few, about a six weeks, and I, I thought, geez, well, like Toronto's got to be ten times rougher than Hamilton, right? Because it's such a big city. And I, and I just said, like, 
we, we've played like six weeks. I haven't seen one fight. I haven't seen any bikers. What is that normal? <laughs> and they went, oh, yeah, no, they all hang out at different places than this. <laughs> and that band went on for a while. How many albums did you do? Well, well the Bobcast was great because I, I got to sing a few songs every night, and it was a, more or less a trio with a singer, so I got to play lots of guitar, and um, that's where I started writing songs. And uh, we made... We made, they made one album before I got joined the band, and then I ended up doing some of the guitar parts on that album. And then the second album, I wrote pretty well two-thirds of that album. And, uh, and, and then, then that band went, went down, and it became a band called the Rock Angels, which was a band that, um, it was the, basically the Bobcats with it, without the singer, so I became the singer. So tell me about the difference between playing with uh, Ronnie Hawkins and being a sideman versus the Bobcats when I presume you were a band member. Yeah, well, that was, all of a sudden, it, yeah, it just seemed like I went from, uh, like the lights went came on. It was like, oh, this, yeah, okay, this is this is a lot better than... The other one was sort of like old school, you know, you're just a musician and you're just dragging yourself from horrible place to horrible place <laughs> and and playing playing every night, but you know, it was okay. Uh the um it's kind of ironic because we're like by the time I quit Ronnie, he 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 was in the last waltz and then he became then he got a TV show and he got all these great gigs. <laughs> It was just like I seem to have this knack for joining a band at when at, when they were at their doing their worst and then leaving just before <laughs> they got their big break. But uh, um, yeah, with the with the Bobcats, it was definitely it just felt more like a, a lot more happening thing. It was showbiz, and we we were playing bigger places and making decent money and making albums and being interviewed and and going on TV. So yeah, it was a it was a big change for me. But it's also a change because bands mean like bands are hard to keep together right yeah i mean that was that was the the sad part about it because we we were all such great friends and then politics and who knows what gets in the way but yeah it just because because you're all equal members everybody you know people start bitching about stuff and it's just yeah it's it was uh because when you're a side man, you can bitch quietly, but you're not gonna bitch to you're not gonna bitch to the boss. <laughs> right, but I guess it's a d different mentality as well. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I mean, look at the great you know one of the greatest bands of all time, the Beatles. They they couldn't stay together, and uh, well, then you also have the Rolling Stones. They've managed to do an amazing run with the, with with two of the principal guys there the whole time, and. Yeah, it's. I mean, yeah. it, it's not easy to keep a band together. So, the when the Bobcats became well, the Bobcats it it, it didn't end great because the singer left, and then we toured around for about six months as the Bobcats as a three piece, and I was the lead singer all of a sudden, and and the original lead singer had been a really theatrical guy that jumped around from corner to corner and was like super showman, and so people had come and see the show and go like. Where's the Where's that guy? The guy, you know, the guy that we really like that jumps around and throws the mic around. Where's he? So, 
it, right. that was a bit of a mistake for me to, to or, or for us to keep that name but the record company and the agency and everybody wanted us to keep the name so we could you know get the money and get, but anyway so after about six months of that we decided okay we got to change the name of the band then we made an album called the rock angels which was uh which was a pretty good album and then we toured around like that and and that's when I realized after about a year and a half of that is like, well, if I have to do all the singing and, and lead the show and write the songs and play all the guitar solos, I want to call it my name. So that's so then in 1985, I, I changed the band over to the Jack DeKaiser band. OK, so how easy was that or how difficult was that? It was it was it was more difficult than now because now you could just do it on Photoshop on your computer. Back then, you used to, you'd have to go to a typesetter and a photographer. And uh, <laughs> no, it's just um, it it uh, the guys the, the the two Bobcat guys were actually pretty good with it uh, for a while, and then um, then the bass player ended up leaving, and and then the drummer. So it was, but that was a very fertile period for me because I, I got a gig at the uh, Hotel Isabella in Toronto and we played every Wednesday to Saturday and we did that for uh, a good year. And then the Wednesdays started getting a little soft and then we just played Thursday to Saturday and I did it for five years. Wow. And it, that's the best gig I ever had in my life pretty well. I lived down the street. I, I would walk to work every night and... Uh, we made great money and every Wednesday we'd go in or Thursday afternoon we'd go in early in the day and we'd rehearse and learn some new songs and uh, the the room held about 100 people so yeah we were doing you know three four hundred people every week and uh, it, it was fantastic it was and it was a great great venue it was a classic venue the Isabella Hotel upstairs I mean before I did it the cameo blues band did it which was chuck jackson and his band right after he did it for about four years i think uh, paul james did it for about four years and then i did it for four or five years and the other cool thing about the isabella was like buddy guy and junior wells played there then once in a while the, the the owner the manager would say hey guys you know next saturday or you know he give us a date. Taj Mahal's gonna play, so if you can get another gig somewhere else. So yeah, they had they had some really good artists play there. I saw Hubert Sumlin there, uh, Taj Mahal, um, Buddy Guy, and Junior Wells. So it was a real happening little place. Bob Dylan came to see me play at the Hotel Isabella. I mean, the other thing is you also started working with some of these people in recording studios. The, uh, yeah, most of those gigs were live shows. Uh, the uh, That was right around the time of... Um, well, Toronto was such a happening place at that time. I mean, there were so many so many clubs to play. The Horseshoe, Lee's Palace, Albert's Hall, uh, the Isabella Hotel. So I'd play the Isabella Hotel, and if I got a better gig, they would let me sub out. And then, so once in a while, we'd go to a different city and play a bigger show, or we'd play at the Phoenix. The Di It was called the Diamond Club back then. Right, and uh, Derek Andrews had was I think he might have been starting the the Toronto Blues Society at that time, and also he was the booker at Albert's Hall, so he he would hire me to to be in the backup band for Otis Rush. I played with Ada James, Bo Diddley, um, uh, John Hammond. So yeah, I got to play with Bo, with some uh, real classic guys back then. Any any lessons to be learned from those experiences? 
like playing with Otis Rush? What was that like for you? Oh, I mean, I, I'm I was such a huge Otis Rush fan. I mean, it, 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 I couldn't. It, it it was it was phenomenal to play with those guys. I mean, Otis was a kind of a difficult guy. I remember we were sitting up in the dressing room face to face, and he he was he was trying to teach me two trains running, and he wanted me to go boom, bam, whatever. He had some lick, right? And then he'd he'd play it, and then I'd play it, and I felt like I played it exactly right. And then he'd look at me and go, uh-uh, <laughs> and then I do it again, and he'd look at me and go, uh-uh. And I do it a third time and I felt like, okay, I know I've got it exactly right. I need to look at me going, okay, let's not do that one. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I loved him because I was, I'm just a huge Otis Rush fan. And, and I remember we played the, the pretty well. The only compliment he gave me was like the first night we played, he gave me a solo in one song and the place just erupted, and then he didn't give me a solo for the rest of the week. <laughs> <laughs> so I just thought, yeah, I understand. <laughs> but uh, he he was playing. Uh, he 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 was just jamming. He he. But it was amazing playing with Otis Rush and playing with Bo Diddley was really cool. I mean, that he was a very generous guy and. Uh, it was, I oh, mean, I to imagine. to play with these people that were on Chess Records, that was my favorite record label, and to to stand next to them was incredible. So at some point or another, you started to branch out to other parts of Canada and play in the East Coast and West Coast. How difficult was that? Um, the um, Well, we started doing that with the Bobcats. We, we drove across the country like at least four times. So, I mean, by the time I was... Uh, 25 or 26 I mean I'd seen a lot of fields and uh, <laughs> a lot of prairies and you know I was like wasn't like I was dying to hop in a van and go do that but um, once in a while I mean I still do this I, w I, I just found good musicians in different cities and I would just send them my material and then go and play with them so there, I have a band in BC um, I've got a band in Edmonton that I've probably been playing with those guys for at least 25 years. And, um, I've got a band in Manitoba uh, and then I have one on the East coast. So basically my band, unless there's a big enough budget to fly everybody out, plays Ontario and Qu Quebec. And any other time I go out, it's, it's, I do it the way that, uh, Bo Diddley did it, the way Chuck Berry did it. And, uh, work with local guys right and then so when you record a new album like you do do you just send that out and say learn these songs we're going to be playing them uh well i'm starting to get to the point now where i feel like to me that was never optimum i mean it, it always felt like i was short selling myself but i mean th there was just absolutely no way i could stick four guys in a, or five guys in a van and drive across the country and play right. and play a bar on a monday or, or you know whatever you had to do to make it across but the last couple years i've been branching out playing more theater shows and uh Really what my goal is, is to try to put together some kind of theater show across Canada or at least, you know, go on, uh, go on, go to, go to as far as Halifax and then back to uh, Toronto and then maybe then go Toronto as far as Winnipeg and back and then maybe 
I, I'm not quite sure how it would work, but going back to studio work, I have had the pleasure of seeing you in the studio a number of times with with your own album, and I, a memorable occasion was when you played with Sam Myers, right, and Harmonica Shaw. Yeah, um, there's something about watching you in the studio that you you seem so comfortable in the studio. I presume this is from years of being in the studio. It is, yeah. You know, because actually, when I started, it was not easy. Um, I think my my general musical mindset is 1955 to about 1970. You know, June first, 1971. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like that's the music that I love the most. That's the recording sounds I like the best. And when I started recording in the eighties, it was just horrible. Like they, they wanted to record the bass drum separately and they wanted everybody in a different town and everybody in a different, well, I'm exaggerating obviously, but they wanted everybody in a different room and they wanted everything isolated and they wanted everything super artificial and that's how they recorded. And I just did not do well with it. And I, I really don't, I'm not crazy about my first couple albums at all. I just I I just wasn't comfortable. I wasn't I didn't feel good about what I did. I didn't like the sound. And then I met a guy named Alec Fraser in the um late 80s and uh he was a great bass player and I know you know Alec and a, a fa- mm-hmm. fabulous musician and he said, "Oh, yeah, you, we can record live just the way they did at Chess Records. We can do whatever you want." So then he came and set up a recording studio at my house when we lived in Whitby at the time, and we made an album, and it was all of a sudden, it was like, wow, like we can play music and record it, and and from that point on, I I really started to love recording and and liked really liked what I heard, and that album was called Down in the Groove, which did did really well, and um, yeah, so I guess ever since then, I started playing more blues dates, especially with our good friend uh, Andrew Galloway at Electrify. And uh, so, yeah, by that point, I had been in the studio a lot of times, so I'm very comfortable in it now. One of my favorite moments was when you played with Sam Myers. Right. And, And you came in, and if I remember this correctly, and oftentimes I don't, but this is the way I remember it, is... Um, I think there was a day when Mel Brown and you were supposed to be in the studio and Mel couldn't make it that day. Right. And Sam Myers was kind of hesitant. And, you know, there's just something... He wasn't... I don't know if he, he was sure about you at that point. He right. He never met you. And, and, um, and you could tell that there was this certain hesitancy. And, but by the end of the studio session, and I, I think I remember a point where the, it was a rap, and then he said, I, I want to do another song. Um, and then you guys did like three songs in a row, which was just amazing. Like it was just like one after another. Right. Um, but it was a, like it was an amazing thing to witness because he, you could see him just turning around and just respecting your playing in, right. in a matter of very short time. I don't know if you remember it that way, but... It was pretty neat. Oh, yeah. Well, that re- that's where my Otis Rush uh, experience came in handy because I know he was just trying He was just trying to bust me down. I remember we played, uh, he said, Dust My Broom. And I went, and then he looked at me and he goes, stop, stop, stop. Put some pep into it. So then I went like, okay. 
stuff. And he made me do it again. And it was just like, I just thought, like, okay, this guy's just screwing with me, right? Because, like, how, yeah, how fast do you want this to go? Like, you can't go faster than, like, you just can't go faster than that. So, anyway, we got to that song. And then I think Andrew Galloway sensed that it wasn't going great. So he said, let's do an acoustic song. So then we did, me and him did a, sat down and I played we started playing and he goes something sounds out of tune <laughs> something and it was just me and him <laughs> so I grabbed my guitar and I went boom do 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 and I looked at him I went how in tune would you like it Sam <laughs> <laughs> and I could see a little smile play across his face and he and I and, and at that point he went yeah, this guy's good. This guy's cool. I can't, I can't screw with this guy anymore. And then, and from that point on, we had a great time. But I remember it was just like, yeah, he was just trying to like, you know, bust my balls. <laughs> but it was interesting to see that transformation, you know, and, and like he was completely sold by the end of it. Um, but there was doubt in the beginning, and it was it was also amazing to me, having known you for a while back then just the way you handled that situation because you were just so cool about it. You yeah. Know, none, none of this seemed to phase you at all. You just kind of went along with it until he came around to you. Right, yeah. Well, I, he, I really did uh, really liked his playing and singing. I mean, he was he was a fantastic uh, old-school um, Chicago-style blues man, although I think he's from, from Texas, right? Was he from Texas? Or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, he played in that style. He was fantastic. It was a. I mean, that I was, was honored to. I was completely honored to be on all those Electrify albums I played on. I mean, that Andrew Galloway was like releasing real blues albums in the '90s and to, right up till now. I played on a yeah. lot. I played on a Harrison Kennedy. I played on a Fruitland Jackson one. I played on a couple of Harmonica Shaw. Um, it's just an amazing. Uh, always a gr a great time being in the studio plus Andrew Galloway was so good at creating a relaxed fun mood in the studio I mean with Willie Big Eyes Smith we had we made some great records mm -hmm. for sure and I you know I was lucky enough to witness some of that and that was just quite magical the other thing you do is your Facebook sh um, performances you right sit there and play songs tell, tell me how that came about well, I'm I'm obsessed. It's like I told, like I said earlier, you know. I mean, they they used to have to tell me to put the guitar down, never never to practice it, and I'm still the same way. Sometimes if I come home from a f good gig, I'll go in the basement and play for another uh, half an hour when I get home. It's like the music's my hobby. It's my life. So I've always loved. I mean, people. I think people sometimes forget or or. There's something I find about blues people. Sometimes maybe they get a little bit too caught up in just one style of music because I feel like, like the music that I grew up with, and it led me to the blues, but it was all pop music. I mean, you can say Zeppelin was, or well, maybe not Zeppelin's a good uh, description, but, uh, you know, the Rolling Stones, um, Cream, Hendrix, they were pop groups. And uh, I've always loved, I've always loved pop music and, uh, I, back in the in the 70s 
there were so many, even 60s, you know, you'd hear, hear Burt Backrack songs that were great hits, and you'd hear uh, Motown and all the great soul songs, and, and all those songs have stayed with me. And I also love jazz music and uh, the, the American Songbook. I love Frank Sinatra. So in, my hobby really is to, you know, learn songs, and, and, and I, I'd like to do that too. I mean, I made the Blues Tribute album last couple years ago. Now I'm making this uh, all-original album again, which is the first one I've done in seven years. And I think for my next album, I'd like to do an album of of songs. So, so it could be a, it could be a Smokey Robinson song. It could be uh, you know a uh, Cole Porter song. I don't know what it could be, but just songs that I love, and and that's what I do on those Facebook uh, things. I just learn songs that I that strike my fancy, and they oh yeah, I'd love to learn that song and see if I can pull that off. It's a neat thing you do because it's so intimate. Yeah, well, it's it's for me, it's like. A, it's a lot of fun to do them for sure, and it also keeps my uh, recording chops up. So I so I engineer and and master and mix the mix the tunes myself. So uh, I ended up doing that myself after after so many years too, because to, with the technology today you can do it, and uh, I really enjoyed that part of it too. I mean, I, I really dig the recording and mixing and mastering, and then I and. And then I'll go back and listen to songs that that I was inspired by, and 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 try to copy some of the recording production techniques, like how much echo do they have on the voice, or how loud is the bass, or you know how many guitars are on this track. So I I, I love that aspect of it too. Right. Um, the other thing I want to ask you about is, I know the world has changed a little bit, but before it changed, and hopefully it will change back to something that we we recognize. Um, you had you have a work ethic unlike many others. Like you're one of the hardest working musicians that I know, and over the years, it just seems like you're playing even more gigs than before. Um, I don't know if it's true, but I, like you know, I've known you for like almost twenty years right. now, and and your concert or tour calendar is pretty packed up, and or was. Right. But tell me about that work eth- work ethic and where that comes from. Um, well, I think just more of the love of the music and um, yeah, I just it's it's my passion. It's my and it's almost my livelihood. <laughs> so <laughs> I have to keep working. I mean, I'm not uh, I I'm not sure I'd want to be retired yet. Um, but I think as far as working goes. As I said, we started playing more theater shows, so I've actually tr- tried to to keep a, play a few less shows, but but try to get bigger crowds out to the shows, and it's been working pretty. It was working pretty good until you know two weeks ago, but right. um, the uh, yeah, I mean, uh, to me, theater shows are real. I, like I I, I kind of wish I had have clued into that twenty years ago because. The, the timing is great. You go out and you play two 50, 60-minute shows. The crowd is totally engaged. Uh, they usually are real C- – they love music. They want to buy CDs. There's no uh, no distractions. The sound is always really good. The, the rooms that you play in are usually beautiful, and, and, the, and the timing of playing from 8 till, like, 11 is really nice. So yeah, I've been trying gradually phasing out the the bar rooms and the uh, you know any anything that's like bar room related. I just have really f- cut them all out. But the other thing you do is the fact that you do 
different presentations as well, like the history of blues guitar. So it's not always just a concert or a performance, but you have also implemented other ideas. Yeah, but that I think that came about more as a uh, you know a, a festival would ask for a workshop or something, and so I just started thinking about well, okay, I could trace trace all all the great guitar players in the blues and see how they influenced each other through the years, and uh, so that turned out to be the evolution of blues guitar, which I which I play pretty, but not that often. Maybe you know two two, three times a year. That's about it. The rest of the time, right. it's pretty well. Uh, my band shows, sometimes I'll do a solo gigs. And the solo gigs are kind of fun lately. Like, I, I don't do a lot, but I'm, I might do like one or two every every few months. And in those shows, I do tend to do the Facebook stuff too. I'll do, I'll play my original songs. I'll play some blues classics, but then I'll play, I'll throw in like a jazz standard or I'll throw in a... Uh, Smokey Robinson song or a Marvin Gaye song or Al Green. So yeah, I get to, I get to branch out a little bit more in the solo shows. Um, you are one of my favorite guitar players. Every time I see you, knock me away. Um, I don't know how you got that good, but <laughs> but you always impress me. And I, and at what point do you think you had your own sound? Uh, I I think I got it quite early in a way because. I've always had this kind of um, like I hear people, uh, and and they'll learn a record and they just learn it exactly. And I go like, wow, that's incredible. They copied that exactly. I don't think I could ever do that. And it's just like, I would always go, okay, I got it pretty close, and then I would, <laughs> and then it would end up sounding like me. So it was sort of like I think I always just sort of went with uh, like, yeah, I think um, I don't want to sound exactly like that person because then I won't be me. So I think that that was always in my playing style. But I guess obviously, after so many years, it comes out more and more and more. So I guess really maybe around the time of. Uh, as far as recorded work goes, I'd say Down in the Groove was sort of the album where when I heard it, I thought, yeah, that sounds, that's starting to sound like me is coming out on the recording. Right. Um, I'm going to wrap this up. I'm going to ask you one final question, which yeah. is, what's the greatest thing you've learned from music? The greatest thing I've learned from music? Well, to me, the thing I love the best about music is that it's, there's like no limits. There's no limit to how good you can be. There's no limit to what you uh, what you can learn, and it has really kept me like a student of 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 music, and it has really kept the passion and the fire alive in me. And you never lost that passion. I still wake up every day, and the first thing I want to do is play the guitar. Wow. Or That's sing, impressive. Or sing a song, or learn a song, or write a song. Wow. Well, on that note, thank you so much for doing this. We've been talking about doing this for a while. I, I know. Really I, I really appreciate it, Marco. I, I hope I'm not too long-winded here. I know I can babble on, but <laughs> hopefully it's not too... It's all interesting to me. Thank you very much for doing this. I really appreciate it. And great. your friendship means a great deal to me. So. Thanks thank so much, much, Marco. Stay well. Have a great day. You too. Thank you.